0: Good afternoon. I hope you guys are okay in this heat. I'll try to uh, truncate the sermon just a little bit, so if it seems a little choppy, I apologize, but I'm, I'm going to try to keep it as to a minimum uh, to not overburden us this afternoon. Um, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, flowing out of that wonderful exposition on the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Um, and this is really part of a greater section of this letter. Paul started on this train back at the end of chapter 1 where he said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That exhortation by Paul included both how we are to treat one another and how we are called to suffer for the gospel. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to talk and to call us to humble love. Uh, to consider others is more significant than ourselves, and to have that mindset of Jesus that we see in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, where Christ humiliated himself, humbled himself, and suffered for love, but then who was finally exalted and worshipped by all. And now Paul's coming back around to the theme of living for and suffering for Christ, living a life worthy of the gospel that is full of joy. So with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be reading uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. You can follow along with me in your Bibles uh, or on the screen or in your bulletins. Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation And even if I am poured to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word once again and we ask for your grace and your power. We ask for understanding. And we ask that you would help us to live in light of the glories of Christ, that we would follow him, that he would be exalted even in our obedience. Lord, help us to find joy in these things, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders and I, over all of us, over the course of the past year or more, have been working on updating and refreshing our vision and mission statement for CCPC. And I'm going to have we're going to have a meeting after the service um, where I'll I'll talk more about it a little bit. And then over the course of the coming months, at some point, I'd like to give a little bit of a deeper dive, spend a little bit of time going over each of the main points uh, in the mission of the church. But for right now, I, I want us to note that many of the things that we see in our text this afternoon are directly related to those core values, those mission statement that we have as a church. And so I just want to share it with you. Um, it's very similar to Paul's own desire for the Philippian church. But here's our updated mission statement. This is brief. We'll get more into a little bit more detail this afternoon later. But our mission statement is... To exalt Christ through reverent, joyful worship. To grow in Christ through Holy Spirit-dependent faith, hope, and love. And to share Christ through, the, through word and deed in our community and throughout the world. And I'll say it one more time. You can put it in the back of your mind as I, as I preach this afternoon and as we move forward. To exalt Christ through joyful, reverent worship to grow in Christ through Holy Spirit-dependent faith, hope, and love, to share Christ through word and deed in our community and throughout the world. And these couple of lines you might just remember, exalting Christ, growing in Christ, and sharing Christ. That's sort of the heart of who we are. We'll get into a little bit more detail, like I said, as time moves on. But here in our letter, Paul has just concluded with the ultimate exaltation and worship of Christ that will happen when he returns, right? He's given the name that's above every name, that at that name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And from that, flowing from that, he says, Therefore, obey. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, continue to grow in obedience to Christ with the purpose and aim of sharing or better, reflecting the glory of Christ to others. In other words, sharing Christ. Or as it says in this passage a little later on, holding out the word of life, or holding on to, or holding fast to, shining like stars or like bright lights. We'll get all get to that, but we can see even in this little short uh, section of the the letter to the Philippians how those ideas that I am proposing as our mission are very much at the heart of Paul for the Philippian church. Now, the sermon today is not on that mission per se, but I want us to begin thinking about what it means for us at CCPC to pursue these aims exalting Christ growing in Christ and sharing Christ so put that into the back of your mind but today paul has a more specific aim for us and in this passage he wants us to reflect jesus to one another and to the world and so this is our call rejoice in reflecting the glory of the exalted Christ. That's, that's what we want to look at this, this afternoon in specific. Rejoice as we reflect the glory of the exalted Christ. So, we're going to look at it in three parts briefly, hopefully. Reflect the exalted Christ in your sanctification. We'll get to that word in just a minute. But reflect the exalted Christ in your sanctification. Reflect the exalted Christ to the world. And then finally, reflect the exalted Christ in your mutual joy with one another. So that's what we're going to look at uh, this afternoon. So first, reflect the exalted Christ in your sanctification. Paul opens this section uh, with this, therefore, my beloved. And there's just two things I want to note real quick. uh, I just want to look at that word beloved. Beloved. Um, this is Paul's affection coming out. You remember throughout the letter of Philippians, he has great affection for them. So here he is, he's saying, he's calling the Philippian church, my beloved. Paul loved them. And we'll come back to the end of the service to talk about that mutual joy that they have in one another. But it's interesting because when Paul uses this language of beloved often, when he uses it throughout his letters, he often ties it to some exhortation about how to live. So in Romans 12:19, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. Or in First Corinthians 10:14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then again in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And in Philippians 4, he goes over the top with this language. We'll get to it. But he says in Philippians 4, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's like over the top. So it seems that whenever Paul wants to say something, maybe a a difficult challenge to them, he says, my beloved, my loved ones. I think it's easy for us to view commands in Scripture as these words of law from a God who is a demanding and harsh God. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Paul, and I think the Lord, Like parents instructing their children, they do it out of love. And that's what we see here in this language of beloved. All right, the second thing I want us to see is the word therefore. I've already mentioned this, but Paul ties this section to the exposition of Christ, to his humiliation and to his exaltation. And as I said last week, everything in this letter flows into that glorious picture of Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 to 11, and flows out of that glorious picture that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In light of that reality, the underlying question, I think, is how ought you to live? Like if Jesus Christ is coming again as the exalted Lord, whose name is above every name, and at that name every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, how then should we live now? What does it look like? So the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In theological terms, Paul is talking about sanctification. Sanctification is that ongoing work of God in the life of the believer by which we are becoming more and more like Jesus, growing in Christ, Reflecting Christ, becoming like Christ. And this is distinguished from another doctrine, justification, which is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons us for our sins and He declares us righteous. He accepts us as righteous in His sight, not on account of anything we've done, not on account of any good that we've done, but on account of Christ Himself. We're talking here about sanctification, that ongoing work, and it is work. We do stuff. Christians often fall into two traps when it comes to the Christian life. We either tend toward trying to add to the work of Christ, okay, Jesus you've saved me, now what must I do to reach heaven, right? That's one avenue that we take. The other avenue we take is that we say, all right, let go and let God. If he's going to change me, he's going to change me. I'm just going to go on living life. I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. I can live how I want to live. It's sort of two paths that Christians go on. Those who have sat with me for membership will remember my illustration of a stairway to heaven. We often view the Christian life as one long stairway to heaven. We often view it as this idea that we've got to climb, we've got to make our way up this hill. The problem is that we can't, right? At least, not in our own effort, we can't climb up this ladder. And what happens is we fall down, and we we get discouraged, and we go in two directions then. We say, okay, either I'm going to act like I got it all together, put up a pretense, self-righteousness, I'm going to act like I'm going to look down on others. Or we give up. We throw in the towel. We say, well, I can't climb that thing. Lord's too harsh. I'm moving on. This is an impossible path. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. But Paul cuts both of these false notions of the Christian life off here in our text. First, he says, work out your salvation. That means be active. Do something. Don't just let go and let God. Right? But second, he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, we are able to work out our salvation. We're able to truly obey, not because of anything intrinsic in us, but because God himself is at work in us. He empowers us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to help, help us. So he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's sanctification. And this, this is really good news. At least for me, this is some of the best news because I'm not left floundering around on my own worried, is God going to accept me? Have I done enough? Have I clambered up that ladder far enough? But he says, I'm going to give you my spirit. We don't need to despair. We don't need to have pretense. God is at work. He calls us to walk by faith, to step forward each and every day, knowing that like a baby learning to toddle, Right? The, the little baby that learns to toddle hanging on to his parents' hands or her hands, and, and uh, they're, they're there, and they have wide eyes and a big smile. They're like, I'm doing it. <laughs> and then they fall down, and they get back up. And they fall down, and they get back up. They fall down, and they get back up. It's not a perfect illustration. But God's mercy and grace and power are sufficient. But Paul says something else. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We won't seek to be holy unless we have a sense of the holy. We won't seek to be holy unless we have a sense of the holy. Paul has just completed his exposition on Christ and he landed on this idea that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. He he landed on the excellency and supremacy of Jesus Christ and the more we see him exalted and lifted up, the more we see that he is the one who has a name that's above every name, the more we recognize him as the Lord of lords, perfect in all his ways, righteous and holy, very God of very God, judge of the whole earth, the more we recognize the exalted Lord as our Lord and Savior who calls us to follow him and to obey him, the more we will desire him. The more we will desire to walk after him the more we keep him in our in our in our eyesight in our vision the more we will follow him it's interesting that paul says obey as you have always obeyed much more in my absence it's one thing to obey when paul is around he's there to encourage them and to lead them and to instruct them but as conflict comes and suffering comes, as Paul is away and can't be present, it's easier to get discouraged, to lose strength. But Paul is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus, the exalted one, not on me, on him. I, I sometimes, as I look at my children, I get palpitations. Sorry. I do when I think about them going off to college. I know some of you parents have already sent your kids off to college, but I, I'm a ways off from that. But I, I can't help but wonder, are they gonna be okay? Are they, are they gonna succumb to the pressures of the world? Will, they over, will that overwhelm, overwhelm them? If I'm not there, right by their side, with their hands in my hand, are they going to be able to, to walk in faith Lord willing, they will, but I think what I do now is that I point them to Jesus so that when they get to college and they don't have their dad holding their hand, they are looking to Jesus, to the exalted Christ. And so it is for us. We are called in holy reverence, fear and trembling, To work out our salvation knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We've reflected on this idea that we need to exalt Christ and to reflect him in our sanctification. The second thing I want to note is that we're to reflect the exalted Christ to the world. Paul moves to specifics in terms of what he means by working out their salvation. He has some very specific instructions uh, for the Philippian church. And in these instructions, he's alluding to some Old Testament references that I want us to see. He says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Grumbling. Grumbling was a common word to describe the attitude and murmurings against God by that generation of Israelites in the wilderness who, when they didn't have water, they complained and grumbled. When they didn't have food, they complained and grumbled. When they faced enemies that looked too strong, they complained and they grumbled, and they did it multiple times. Now, it should be noted that we have no reason here in the text to think that the Philippian church had this similar attitude towards God, okay? We we have nothing in the text that indicates that they were grumbling and murmuring against God. Nevertheless, Paul brings up this language of grumbling, alluding back to that Old Testament picture. But he adds another word, here translated disputing. It seems that Paul's concern is that they wouldn't grumble and complain or dispute with one another. And this is a sentiment that we've already seen from Paul, who said earlier, have the same mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same love. Be in full accord with one another. His concern for them is that they would fall into disputing, that they would grumble against one another. And he goes on later in this uh, letter, he'll instruct, exhort two women. He'll say, Euodia and Syntyche, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know the nature of the problems in Philippi. Whatever they were, it's clear that Paul sees such behavior, grumbling and disputing, or better, the better word that is often translated is quarreling, is not only wrong and sinful, but it's a detriment to the witness of the church to the world. When there is infighting in the body, the light of the church is dimmed. Now, I'm not suggesting that real substantial issues within the body ought not to be dealt with, that we should just sweep them under the rug, right? That, that's equally as dangerous. That's not what I'm suggesting. For the sake of unity, we just never disagree. We just never disagree. I think I brought up the illustration of the Borg, that Star Trek um, unity that was trying to make everybody think and act the same. That's not what I'm talking about here, but it ought to be noted that this is a call not to make mountains out of molehills. Paul uses this word disputes elsewhere, where it carries the connotation of needless arguments or over things such as do you eat food sacrificed to idols or matters of opinion? Romans 14.1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And that word opinions is the same word we have right here, disputes. Disputes over minor things. When I do premarital counseling, I do a whole section entitled How to Fight Well. And for young sort of doe-eyed lovers, this idea that they would fight is sometimes jarring. They're like, well, you don't fight. It's like, um, you will. But I suggest to them that fighting is actually an important thing. You're not fighting against one another, but you're fighting for the good of the marriage. Learning how to fight well for the marriage is a very important skill to learn within the context of that marriage. But what's bad, what's detrimental to a marriage, is not contending for the marriage, but quarreling, grumbling against each other, needlessly arguing about meaningless things. And so it is in the church. And the effect is that when the church grumbles and disputes, rather than reflecting the exalted Christ in the world, it looks like the world. We start to look, because what does the world do? That very thing. Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. But he, listen to this. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as, as lights in the world. Again, here, Paul's picking up themes from the Old Testament. God told Abraham in Genesis 17 to walk before him and be blameless. Same Greek word. At least in the Septuagint. These are the marching orders for Abraham. You're to walk before me and be blameless. And you could extend that out to all of Abraham's children, to all the people of God. Walk before me and be blameless. What's the problem with the Israelites? What's the problem with us? By the time you get to the end of Deuteronomy, when a new generation is about to enter the promised land, God says, don't be like the previous generation that wandered and died in the wilderness, of whom Moses says in Deuteronomy 32.5, hear these words. He says, they have dealt corruptly with him. That is, they've dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Same language that we find here. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, don't be like the world. Don't be like the Israelites of old who grumbled and disputed, who became crooked and twisted, just like the nations around them. Rather, the more that we reflect our union, our mutual love and affection, the more we humbly serve one another, the more we will look like Christ. And what is the effect of looking like the exalted Christ. Well, what's the effect of the exalted Christ? When Christ comes exalted, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. Now, it's not quite the same, but as we live and reflect Jesus in the world, people see the exalted Christ. They see him lived out in his people different. He says, you will shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Now, this little holding fast language, it's tricky to translate. It could mean either holding it strongly or holding it out. It could be either one of those, holding it strongly or holding it out. And in the context, it could be either one of those, right? They seem to be opposite. One is to hold on to it, the one is to give it away. But I think Paul is purposefully using this word to say, the more you hold on to the word of life, i.e. living as reflections of the exalted Christ, the more you hold out and offer the exalted Christ to others. To put it more plainly, Our Christ-like love toward one another shows forth the exalted Christ to others. So Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you're the greatest preachers in the world, if you're the most knowledgeable and wise Christians in all the world, if you are out there doing everything to get the word out. No, in fact, he doesn't say that. Christ said, you, they will know that you are Christians by your love for one another, by your love for each other. And the converse is true. If we do not reflect the exalted Christ in our treatment of one another, we offer nothing to the world. Have you ever been out on a starry night where you have a, a meteor shower? It's pretty spectacular, right? But with, I've tried to stay up for them, or, but usually it's cloudy. But sometimes you catch it and you see a shooting star and it's pretty spectacular. The thing about the shooting star is it's there in a second and it's gone, right? It shoots brightly for a second and it's gone. But have you ever been out into a very clear sky with no ambient lights around Have you ever been out in the wilderness on a clear night and had this huge canopy of stars the whole milky way shining brightly all those great stars shining brightly the planets shining brightly they last. They stay up there, and they, you can sit there all night, and you can watch it turn and change as the night moves on and the day starts to come. But those stars, they last. And I think what Paul is saying is if you want your brightness to last, show love to one another. Don't be like a shooting star. In so doing, we offer life to the world. Finally, and in conclusion, reflect the exalted Christ in your mutual joy. Paul makes a turn here, as we looked at this uh, similar uh, in the past weeks, but he makes a turn here that he says that I think it's not understood properly. It could be the exact opposite of Christ's humility. He says, essentially, work out your salvation by not grumbling or disputing, but holding fast or Holding out the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be found, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul, is it really about you? Is it all about your pride? Is it all about your not running in vain? Let me um, first just say a couple things. We we've seen throughout that Paul's proudness or his boasting is not in himself but it is in Jesus for him to live is Christ and to die is gain he cares little about himself in that sense and second the sentiment here I think is actually very natural it expresses what we all feel when a loved one perseveres in the faith let me give you an illustration I did college and youth ministry for about eight years before going into uh, pastoral ministry and occasionally I'll get reports from my former students some of those reports Deeply grieve me. Tragic stories of abandoning the faith, of making a ruin of their lives. But some of the reports that I receive bring great joy, exceeding joy. Dare I say, they make me proud. Because I hear about their strong faith, how they've grown up, how they're engaged in ministry, or they're living godly lives full of grace. And I can say with all confidence, they are my pride and joy. Not because it confirms my ministry prowess, (laughs) if anything it's the opposite, right, It's despite my weak efforts, but because Christ is exalted in them, I rejoice. We should be finding joy and delight and pride in Christ as we walk together, as we grow up, as we see one another growing and contending for the faith and showing off the fruit of righteousness because we see Christ at work in them. When a child walks for the first time, you're proud. It's a proud thing when you let go of their hands and they walk. Did you do anything? To make them walk? I mean, sure, you fed them, (laughs) that's about it, but you have great pride. You didn't make them walk, but they delight that God would use you to shepherd and care for that little child as a parent. You're just delighted, I'm a proud papa, I'm so happy for this little baby, I'm just happy that I was a part. I think that's the sense that we have here from, from Paul. Paul concludes by expressing his joy and delight in pouring himself out for them. Like that parent and the baby, there is nothing he wouldn't do for their growth in faith. Question is, what does it mean for us to reflect the exalted Christ? I think it means finding joy and delight in the growth and faith of one another. I think it means that when we look at each other, you, there are parts that we see of one another that are glaringly wrong. Like we can we can say, yeah, they don't measure up in this way, right? We do that. And, and I would just encourage you, I'd say don't don't look at those things so much. Not that you don't encourage you, your brother or sister. Rather, look at Look through those things and see what Jesus is doing in their life. See the, the, the changes that are happening. Give them encouragement and rejoice with them when they overcome sin. When they, when they battle temptation and win and come alongside them in their weakness. We rejoice in what God is doing and has done and will continue to do in one another. Encourage one another. Pour out yourselves for one another. And rejoice with one another as we see the exalted Christ manifest in one another's lives. Of course, Paul's sacrifice, his pouring out, this drink offering language of him being poured out like a drink offering for the Philippians and his joy, does not compare with what the exalted Christ did for us, that we might have faith, hope, and salvation, that we might have eternal joy. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despising the shame he conquered. And he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he is there interceding on our behalf, and he has sent us his spirit that we might grow up and look like Him, so that at the day that He returns, we might bow with all joy and thanksgiving as we are transformed, transfigured, into that new image, that new person, fully, without any blemishes, pure, and spotless. Friends, let us rejoice as we reflect together the glory of the exalted Christ. Let's pray.